and welcome to Scrubcast. This is a podcast which will hopefully help surgical trainees prepare for their exit exam with some on-the-go revision. My name's Eamon Ammer, and I'm a HBB and transplant trainee here at the Freeman Hospital in Newcastle. With me today is Professor Derek Manus, the Director of the Institute of Transplantation here and the Chair of the British Liver Transplant Group. Professor Manus, welcome to Scrubcast. Thank you. Uh, Nice to be here. Prof, we've decided to uh, kick off this podcast with a rundown on primary liver malignancies. Today, we'll be talking about cholangiocarcinomas. That's a broad term, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, well, cholangiocarcinoma encompasses a number of tumours at different sites from intrahepatic to hyalur to common hepatic duct extrahepatic lesions to retropancreatic and gallbladder. I think we'll talk about gallbladders in a, in a separate episode because that has its own um, classification and management strategy. But where would you draw the line between distal cholangiocarcinomas, for example, and perihyler? Um, I think any lesion that is above the duodenum within what we would call a common bile duct, whether it's common bile duct or common hepatic duct, if it's above the duodenum, that is a problem because it may involve the hilum and it may be a type 1 or type 2 hyalocholangia. It's very difficult to know because there's a lot of foreshortening in the, in, in the hepatoduodenal ligament. So perihyalocholangiocarcinomas, is, is that class as extra? Yeah, so I think it's really important to remember that in the, in the, over the last 25 years, um, the classification of cholangiocarcinoma has been poor because they've included perihyla as intrahepatic. Hmm. So the intra- true peripheral intrahepatic lesions and the perihyla lesions have been lumped into one. Right. So when you look at all the epidemiology data, where, and we know there's good evidence that there's a significant increase in cholangiocarcinoma, it's including intrahepatic and perihyla. We've now finally, through the cholangiocarcinoma UK group, managed to change that classification and for the first time it's going to be separated but there are two very different tumors and the perihyla ones are the most common those are the, the intrahepatic are the least common the prognosis is different for both of them we're talking roughly 40 percent of cholangiocarcinomas are perihyla and yeah, then you've got 40, a slightly 40 to 60 percent 40 yeah. to 60 right and then slightly lower incidence would be the distal cholangiocarcinomas that you got about 10 20% intrahepatic. Yeah, so I think it's perihyla as a commerce, then distal, and then intrahepatic. Intrahepatic right. about 7 to 10%. Right. And um, compared to hepatocellular carcinoma, these tumors in general are much rarer, aren't they? Um, yeah, they're rarer, but actually the, in, the incidence is increased significantly compared to HCC. Hepatocellular carcinoma, the incidence worldwide is coming down mm. because hepatitis C is being contained. There is some evidence that actually if you treat hepatitis C with the new direct acting antivirals that the incidence of HCC is going up. But overall, epidemiologically, if you imagine a graph with the line uh, starting in 1990 and ending in 2018, the HCC line will be will be heading downwards and the cholangiocarcinoma will be heading significantly upwards. That brings me to a good point here, which is that if we talk about intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas versus HCC, 
there's a higher probability that you've got background liver disease with HCC, isn't there, than, yeah. than with, with cholangiocarcinoma. I mean, the chance of being, having a background liver disease with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma is much less, but you can get very confused between the two lesions because mm. they both have a hypervascular element to them. They're both vascular tumors. But obviously, HCC has the, the characteristic portal phase washout, which intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma don't. But very commonly, um, patients are transplanted for what they think is HCC and turns out to be intrahepatic cholangia. And as you know, those two tumors are a very different prognosis. That's right. Intrahepatic cholangia is a, is a tumor with a very poor prognosis compared to HCC. So let me just, let me just highlight this point, because you said HCC and intrahepatic uh, cholangiocarcinomas can be difficult to distinguish. I was always under the impression that with a CT scan you could tell the difference, and even intraoperatively, for example, intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas are usually more fibrotic. They produce more. Yeah, no, more I think you're right. I think intraoperatively you can see they look different, mm. um, and you're right. They're firm white tumors, but there's about ten percent of intrahepatic cholangias look like HCCs, and it's on imaging you can't tell the difference. So for, for those listeners who don't know the difference between the two lesions, so with, with a CT scan, uh, with a HCC, obviously you've got this early arterial phase enhancement, yeah. whereas you don't get that with the fibrous uh, intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, and it only enhances in delayed phases. Is that right, Prof? That's right, yeah. That generally, with most adenocarcinomas, which you find, but there are a group of intrahepatic cholangias. The problem with with this disease is that you can have a combination tumor, so it'll be a cholangio-HCC, which behaves clinically like a cholangio, but looks sometimes on imaging like an HCC. And the other dilemma, I suppose, is uh, metastatic tumors, particularly colorectal liver mets. Mm -hmm. I find, you know, listening to MDTs, that uh, the radiologist could, would look at a tumor and say, well, it could be a cholangiocarcinoma, an intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, but it could equally be metastatic. Yeah. Um, and that's where the need for biopsies comes in. Yeah, and so sometimes adenos are adenos. They look very similar on CT scan. But uh, a lot of radiologists will go on the clinical history. So if you say this is someone who's never had colorectal cancer, they'll make a diagnosis of cholangia based on the history and the imaging, which looks like adenocarcinoma. Okay, and I also see that sometimes um, radiologists can find it difficult to differentiate between malignant uh, lesions, so, so intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, and IgG4 disease. So uh, intrahepatic is intrahepatic. I don't think you get intrahepatic IgG4 disease. But the periductal tumors are the ones where you have the problem. As you know, there are four types of periductal, and they can be very difficult to distinguish from IgG4 disease or a cholangiopathy. Right, so for hyler cholangiocarcinomas... they're four times. Right, yeah. okay, so mass-forming... Yeah, so the commonest one we see in the West is mass-forming. Mm. Um, and then, then you've got the nodular one, which is like a nodule within the duct okay. or in the wall. It's an introductal Introductal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then you get the periductal lesion, which is... Uh, superficial spreading it spreads along the bile duct. Mm. It's much more a Japanese type of disease and more aggressive. And it's a disease I associated with things like clonorchosinensis, which mm. is a liver fluke. 
which is a big risk factor in places like Taiwan. Here's the tongue twister, though, Prof. The other fluke. I'm going to have to read this one. Opisthosis viverini. That's, that, that will get you an eight for the FRCS, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Opisthosis viverini. Apparently, northeast Thailand is where you get the majority of these uh, yeah, tumours from these flukes. Um, so, Professor, if we stick to perihyla uh, cholangiocarcinomas as the commonest of yeah. the three types, I suspect presentation-wise, it's jaundice, isn't it? The vast majority of patients present with jaundice. Hmm. You know, the, there's, a, there's a classification that divides them into type 1, 2, 3, A, B, and type four, 4. Yeah. Um, and occasionally the type 3, A or B, whether it's the right duct or the left duct. So you're referring to the bismuth corletti, is that That's, how it is? Yeah, yeah, bismuth corletti. Corletti, yes. Yeah, classification, which is quite an old classification, but we still use yes. it. And it's, it's useful because it allows you to to communicate with each other. But it doesn't tell you much about vascular no, involvement or... or but sometimes you know, if it's a 3B, stuff. for example, and it's way up into the left duct, it's higher in the left duct, you don't always get jaundice because the right side drains through aberrant segment 6 duct or it drains anyway, so you don't get jaundice, but majority present with jaundice. That's okay. how they present. Right. And there'll be crossover through from the left side to the right, so they will drain mm. so they won't present jaundice but that's the only scenario where they won't but eventually they do become jaundiced mm. so apart from apart from jaundice um these patients can obviously present with cholangitis and sepsis no. uh, initially um and that that is a very big problem because once you get sepsis in an obstructed system like this that where drainage is really difficult to get you end up with suppurative cholangiopathy and that is associated with a very high risk of perioperative mortality if you're going to operate on patients like that, uh, which, which resulted in the Japanese many years ago developing a process of draining every segment of the liver. And they used to drain the liver till there was absolutely normal bilirubin level. And did that increase or reduce perioperative mortality? Reduced the mortality. Did it? Right, okay. Because if you leave an undrained segment of liver, as the reserve, the liver you're going to leave behind, you'll run into big trouble. Mm, right. Because obviously you know that obstructed biliary system has lots of associated risk factors, which includes affecting the the overall immune system. It produces a hematological comp- consequences, coagulopathies, mm. uh, renal failure. I mean, it all just a huge knock-on effect. So... Is it right in assuming that you're an advocate of draining all segments of the future liver remnant? Okay, so just let's say that if you have some of the hyalocalangia, what are the most important things you want to do as the surgeon? First of all, you want to know if the patient's going to be operable because surgery is the only cure. And then the next thing is how you make them safely operable. And the next thing is to know the extent of the disease and the anatomy of the disease. Those are the most important things. And making them safely operable involves draining the jaundice. I'm a strong advocate of saying I do not like operating on patients who have obstructive jaundice. Now, there's good evidence in the literature of a level at which the bilirubin should be, at the level at which the bilirubin should be before you consider surgery. And there's lots of data on it. To cut a long story short, the current recommendation 
3 milligrams per deciliter or 50 millimoles per liter blue ribbon. Above that, you shouldn't be operating and doing major resection. Below that, it appears to be safe. Now, there was one meta-analysis which was published by Daniel Shirky from Paris looking at whether bilirubin uh, impacted on survival if you operate on some of the higher phalangia. And that showed mortality wasn't any different, irrespective of the bilirubin level, but morbidity was massive if the bilirubin was above 50. Right, right. Okay, so that's, that's in contrast to distal phalangiocarcinomas yeah, and pancreatic. totally different. Right. It's because the res- liver resection is the problem. Resecting people with obstructed joints is a problem. Um, and that's that's the, le- the most recent data, that's where it is. So I'm looking here at the, um, the most recent uh, BSG guidelines, admittedly from 2012, and the recommendation at that time was that routine biliary drainage before uh, assessing resectability or preoperatively should be avoided. Uh, except for certain situations such as acute cholangitis uh, with modification of antibiotic prophylaxis according to the patient. Well, that's distal cholangia. That will not... So this guy, that guideline from BSG involves cholangiocarcinoma for all three sites. Um, and yeah, they, I would agree with that. You don't drain, drain unless you have to. For hyalocholangia, um, I think there's, there's a lot of contention and we change, we're rewriting the guidance. Right, so, Prof, would you or would you not advocate percutaneous biliary drainage for all your hylas and or intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas? So we, we do, well, intrahepatic probably doesn't need drainage most of the time, but unless they're massive, mm. um, and they're involving the hyla. But in our centre, we would preferentially do percutaneous drainage. Why is that? Um, that's because we have previously audited our results of ERC. A lot of patients being referred in with previous ERCPs have ended up with duct perforation, sepsis, uh, cholangiopathy, and we've had to repeat numerous procedures. About 70% of the patients we get from outside have to have repeated drainage. Also, it gives you a level of the extent of the disease. Now, one of the biggest problems with hyalocalangia is the extent, simply because the imaging is not good enough. Whether you do CT, MR, MRCP, um, whatever phase of MR you look at, to actually get the upper limit of the tumor is the most important thing, and you can't always see that. With PTCs, you're much more accurate. We don't cross the tumor, you don't, so you're not going to spread disease, and you're draining the lobe you're leaving behind. When you say you want to see the proximal extent, are you talking about sort of upstream, close to the periphery yeah. of the liver? Why is that important? Because you, once you go to the second and third order ducts, then that's in, inoperable. I mean, you're not going to manage to deal with that if it's in the second or third order ducts. Now, sometimes you can. It doesn't matter if you've got two main ducts. And very commonly, if you're doing, a, for example, an extended left hepatectomy, mm-hmm. then you'll go to you will go to the to the anterior and posterior division of the right duct, and you may, you'll get you may get three biggish ducts to stitch to. But once you go to the second order ducts, you're talking about eight ducts that okay. you're never going to manage. So what you're referring to here is the extent of disease to, to, to the, basically the side that you're planning to leave. 
Yeah, rather that's than, the important yeah. part. Yes. Whether if you, if you got diseases going up into the left lateral segment or up into the right, and you're going to take take, take right, that right out, yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's the other side the that other we're referring side. to. The, the and future so the vast majority of hyalocalangias are truly hyla. So they involve they involve both left and right ducts. We just talk about A, if it's going up the right more than up the left, or B, if it's going up the left more oh, than right. right. But generally, they involve both ducts. Right. Well, while we're talking about that, could you clarify resectability for hyla, for perihyalic cholangiocarcinomes? So resectability, one is you have to have clear vessels to a functional liver remnant. That means you need at least four segments that are going to have a bile duct, an artery, and a vein. So if you've got a tumor on the left and you've got vascular involvement on the right, that's unresectable. Mm. If you have a tumor that extends, as we said before, into the second or third order ducts on the side you're needing to leave behind, Mm. that's unresectable. If you've got disease outside the liver, that's unresectable. Now, outside the liver, there are two things you talk about. One is distant metastases yeah. that's lung common site is lung the other the, the other extrapatic site is lymph nodes mm. and that's always been a big point of contention about what to do with the lymph nodes okay um, and the Japanese have for many years looked at doing extended node dissection um, and we now have come down to the final decision which I think is any N2 node disease nodal disease is unresectable you're not going to change the outcome for the patient so portal nodes which would be station 8 which is around the pelvic artery mm-hmm. station 12 12p which is around the portal vein or the portal cable nodes it's called those nodes you take out with the tumor that's fine n1 nodes which are just behind the pancreas if you're mobilizing them if there's something there you can take that if you end up with nodes around the superior the pancreas celiac axis periotic nodes those definitely make the tumor inoperable right so what we do routinely is clear all the nodes above the renal veins so we go down to the cava mobilize the duodenum clear everything above the renal veins on, on the cava and that's it mm. that's the only bit of no- nodal dissection we do mm. and you, what you need is you need you need some node sampling to determine the outcome because positive nodes yeah. affect, affect the it yeah yeah and, and and the recommendation is seven nodes you need to send at least seven mm-hmm. nodes mm-hmm. and then the other thing is makes patient operable is is fitness and how uh, and how good their liver reserve is mm. if they've had a long history of alcohol abuse um you know if they've got uh, psc with fibrosis i mean psc as a as a disease with with a high risk of developing cholangiocarcinoma, the chance that you resect that patient safely is very very small, because they, the majority of them will be cirrhotic by the time they get to you. Yeah, I mean, we will. We'll, I, I was going to um, talk about PSC and, uh, so, and cholangiocarcinoma. Yes, right, right at the end. I think I think it deserves its own uh, its own time. Um, but going back to but going back to resectability, um, if the hepatic artery that's <coughs> only if the hepatic <coughs> artery involved, if the portal vein's clear but the artery's involved, that's unresectable, and there have been numerous 
cohort studies, the Japanese Nagoya did the randomized trial and showed that you do not increase survival by taking the pelagic artery and actually you, you have a 30% mortality risk. The most recent data from Nagoya after 1,500 hyaluronic shows the mortality is down to 15%. But that is still a high mortality. Uh, what about portal vein? Portal vein, there's no problem with portal vein. It doesn't, it doesn't make it inoperable, provided you can replace it. Now, having said that, there's again no evidence that portal vein resection improves your outcome. The only time it improves your outcome is it allows you to get an R0 resection. Mm. And that, the most important thing in determining outcome is an R0 resection mm. and an N0 um, nodes. Totally if you can have R0, N0, you have a good yeah. chance of getting a 48-50% fiber survival. 48-50%, to 50%, that's, quite, that's quite high, but that's rare, isn't it? The chances you'll get R0, N0 is very small, mm. and getting R0 is, must be the key, because if you've got positive margin at the end of the resection, survival is still almost high single figures mm. at five years. Mm -hmm. And it's fair to say that the majority of these tumours will require a major resection. Yeah. So we're talking extended right, And that's the other thing that's left. changed over the years, is that going from, let's just take out the tumour with a bit of liver so we can get get the, you know, the central bit of ducts out, that's changed to extended resection. And the, the more liver you can take away to get a negative margin, the better the outcome. Mm. What about chordate lobe? So the chordate lobe is another point of contention, and that was also that was that was really brought in by Yogi Niemura, who was who really popularized the operation. He popularized the use of the chordate lobe resection because the bile ducts of the chordate lobe come from the back of the bifurcation, and so the chances are that if you've got a bifurcation lesion, a true Klatskin tumor. Hmm. Gerald Klatskin, who was a pathologist, yes. to describe this. We've, 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 we've not referred to them as Klatskin tumors, but and, yeah, and that's what they used to be called. it's discouraged yes. now mm. to use that term. Mm. It used to be called a Klatskin tumor. But if it comes from the back of that bifurcation, then the chordate's going to have tumor in it. And so he popularized the removal of the chordate. It's now most, most centers and surgeons who do a lot of hyaluronic feel that if you're doing a left, it's essential to take the chordate because the, the chordate coming from the left duct. But if it's a right tumor, especially if it's a, it's a 3A higher in the, in the duct and yeah. not all the way down to the, then, then you probably don't need to do that. Because chordate involvement is going to be less. More common so, on the yeah. left. There's about 30% right. risk of involvement of chordate lobe generally, but I didn't know that yeah. there was a, a difference between So for the, the for left tumors, you always take it. Mm. For the right tumors, you don't always take it, and sometimes when I'm doing, if I'm doing a right and I'm concerned about the, 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 the functional volume that's left mm. behind, I leave the chordate mm. because the chordate has its own venous drainage and its own blood supply, mm. and it will grow very quickly mm. for you. Is is that not really the case then that you're leaving chordate because you're you know with a right resection, extended right, you're actually taking more liver, so you want to leave a little bit more rather than, you know, there's an increased risk. No, I think the risk is is less from the right side right. of the tumors. Okay, um, so moving on from resection, uh, Prof. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but there at the minute there isn't there isn't an option for downstaging for perihyla cholangiocarcinomas. 
you probably don't need a downstaging because they're quite small they're right. tumors. Mm. But it's just that their, their location. It's just the location mm. problem. For intrahepatic, I think there is an option to okay. downsize it, mm. especially the big ones, because we know you know you can use CERT, uh, which is selective internal mm. radiotherapy, and shrink them down. And we've done that quite successfully. But for hyalurs, I don't think you can down. Yeah, so you got to downstage them. If you're considering transplant, then I think that's a different way of downstaging mm. them. But trying to keep the disease local in the liver. Right. Okay. So so that was going to be my next point: the the Mayo protocol, because they do use neoadjuvant chemotherapy yeah. and radiotherapy prior to surgery. But you're saying that that's mainly to keep the tumor at bay, yeah. as opposed to shrinking Shrink it down it. further so the overall yeah. result so the overall outcome so don't better. forget this tumor has a predilection to invade nerves mm. so perineural invasion and also perianventricular invasion and if you're going to consider transplantation which is a whole different subject mm. i think warrants a whole absolutely on its own. or a re- um, or a read of our recently published uh, article but we'll not talk about that i've seen um, worse adverts in podcasts <laughs> then uh the, I think the the f- treatment is focused on making sure that it doesn't spread outside the liver, so you can excise the liver. The big problem with the the Mayer protocol is is based on the fact that they didn't have a tissue diagnosis, mm. and that is a very difficult thing to do. That's one of the dilemmas of hyalocalangia, is getting tissue to prove that it's a tumor. So the recommendation now is that you don't need to do that. Mm. But if you're considering liver transplant, then I think there is a there is a question about making sure you get tissue. Okay, so that's interesting. So you, you you don't normally get tissue. You go by radiological suspicion, presumably here, unless you're not planning to resect. Yeah. So that's in right. which case, obviously, it's yeah. a completely different ball yeah. game. And mm-hmm. getting a diagnosis is difficult, even with all the modern technology. You know, it's still the sensitivity and specificity of things like EUS for perihilar lesion. If you've got no mass. And it's just periductal lesion. It's very difficult to get good tissue. Right. Um, so, you know, you've done your surgery, you've resected the tumour. The next stage, adjuvant chemotherapy. That's that's yeah. that's new now, isn't it? Here well, in the I UK. think now we, we kind of um, have all agreed that even though the Bill Cap trial was a very flawed trial, mm. there is some positivity in there. Mm. So now, the, the higher lesions probably didn't do as well. The problem with the Bullcap study was it. It was an it umbrella. Was, it was yeah, all yeah. collagenous, <clears throat> including gallbladder. Exactly, that's right. And the, yeah. and the and the and the results when they did the uh, intention to treat analysis, I think, wasn't significant in the end. But protocol per protocol mm. analysis showed benefit, and so that's why it's been approved for hyalurs. There weren't that many hyalurs in the Bullcap oh, right. study, mm. and they didn't do as well as the distals. But we would still give yeah. capsaicin. We do. So we give everyone capsaicin. Mm. So all cholangiocarcinoma, intrahepatic, perihyla, and distal yeah. cholangiocarcinoma will all get. I think intrahepatic, to me, is a different disease, mm. but we treat it the same way. So if this patient wasn't um, resectable, and you were going down the palliative route, obviously you would drain their uh, obstruction if they yeah. were obstructed as, as a they palliative measure exactly yeah. to get them to the next step which is chemotherapy now chemotherapy here is different mm. um, so from what I understand the uh, ABC1 and 2 trials uh, exactly so it was yeah. talking about cisgem was there cis, cis and there have been lots of really good trials chemotherapy trials in Kalanjia in mm. this country 
is ABS7 now. All oh, right. I mean, there have been lots of good studies mm. showing there is benefit. But the standard, I presume, remains cisgender, so, is that right? Yeah, the standard is cisgender for, 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 though, for palliative yeah. chemo. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, I'll, I'll ask the question, do you have patients in your experience that go down the palliative route, let's say for a, for a peripheral, for a, an intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, do you see these patients who come back after a period of cisgem where you think actually now this is resectable? There have been a few, but they have few and far between. Mm. I mean, we see a much better response to third treatment right. um, for intrahepatics. So selective intrahepatic radiotherapy yeah. with yttrium. Yttrium. Yttrium 90. Yttrium 90. And with their beads, and their resin beads or glass beads, we mm. use both. So um, we did, there was a CTE, which is a um, commissioning through evaluation study done across the country for two years. We were part of that. It was mostly based on colorectal metastasis. Okay. But because there was a special request made for intrapatic cholangios halfway through the CTE, so we managed to treat 77 patients. Um, and that data is now published, and it does show benefit. So CERT treatment or radioembolization, whatever you want to call it, has got benefit for patients with intrapatic cholangios, especially the big 10 centimeter. So it may down, downsize it. It will, it will downsize it in a significant number. Okay, so finally, just going to PSC and cholangiocarcinoma. High risk, obviously, 400 times more than the, uh, the non-PSC population. Yeah, so, so you have a 70% chance in your lifetime as a PSC mm. patient of developing cholangiocarcinoma. And if you do, the outcome is death, unfortunately. Mm. There is no treatment unless you consider transplantation. We aren't allowed to transplant patients with PSC who have cholangios mm. at the moment. Mm. We've just put forward a protocol to do that, mm -hmm. and it's been approved through the Liver Advisory Group that we can now. Mm -hmm. So the only treatment option is someone with PSC who has a cholangio is transplant. And that's simple as that. Okay. So would you transplant all patients with PSC? You need to treat the patient's disease. Okay. We know that if you've got a dominant stricture, mostly extrahepatic mm. or hyla, if you have a dominant, your risk of cholangiocarcinoma is much higher. Whereas small duct PSC, which is intrahepatic, the risk of cholangiocarcinoma is much less. So large duct PSC, you need to have close surveillance. The question is how you do that. Because mm. ERCP... It's difficult because yeah. you fill the system with contrast. Yeah. You can't get. Characters. You end up having to put stents in, mm. and then you screw up your chance of getting a diagnosis. Further, yeah. And PET scan, although there's been a very recent r review of PET scan in Kalanjo, it's still not particularly good. Mm. MRCPs again. MRCP for PSC terrible. Right. So it is very difficult. So. Using there's a number of scores. There's the King's College score, which uses CEA, CA99, uh, plus the uh, size of the spleen, plus a whole lot of things to try and decide who should be considered for transplant. Right. And so there are ways of helping, but actually, the best is you just keep a very close mm. eye. Because at the minute, you're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place here. You can't transplant them when they've got cholangiocarcinoma at the minute here yeah. in the UK. But equally, you, you, know, can't, you can't transplant them yeah, too early. So, I mean, you can find reasons to. Mm. And one of the things that determines the patient's outcome is cholangitis. So if you have a PSC patient gets recurrent cholangitis, mm. 
and they have a dominant stricture, mm-hmm. then you can put them forward for transplant, the indication being recurrent cholangitis. And you know in those patients, the risk of cholangitis is much higher. Now clarify this for me, please, Prof. Does having ulcerative colitis change the risk in any way of developing cholangiocarcinoma um, with PSC? No. It changes the risk of developing recurrent PSC. Right. In, in the, in in the transplant. transplant. Okay. But if you, so, I mean, the evidence with ulcerative colitis is that if you've had quiescent ulcerative colitis, then the risk of PSC being complicated is much less. Mm. And the longer, but the longer you've had osteoclitis, the more risk you have of being carcinoma of the colon. Okay, thank you very much. So let's, let's so let's let's do a, a kind of sham exam question. Okay. Yeah. So um, you have a fifty-eight-year-old chap mm-hmm. who presents to the A and E with obstructive jaundice, painless mm-hmm. obstructive jaundice. You're the consultant on call, mm-hmm. um, and you get called to see him. Just talk me through what you're going to do step by step once okay. you've seen him. Okay. Um, so I'll first start by asking the patient what symptoms they've had sort of in the, in the days and weeks prior to this. Have they been losing weight? Have they lost their appetite? How long have the jaundice has been going on for? And whether they've got any symptoms that suggest cholangitis with this. I'm also going to ask them about their background medical history to um, because that, that will be important in, in determining future management. Obviously you'd examine the patient and... Okay, so examination is jaundice. Nothing else to find mm-hmm. is, but it's, it's itching. Okay. He's got some scratch marks. Okay, so in A&E I'd probably take routine blood tests, make sure that they're not septic, they're not coagulopathic and their kidney function is fine. Um, rehydrate them. And so when you say them. kidney function is fine, are you expecting to have abnormal kidney function? Absolutely. At this point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, I don't know how long this patient's been jaundiced for. He was in Mallorca for a week and came back jaundiced. Mm. Yeah, even if it's only a week. I mean, how, how did you say fifty-eight? Yeah. So, so relatively young, but I, I, I would expect this patient um, to develop an acute kidney injury, particularly if they were older. But and cross-functional imaging? Yeah, oh, absolutely. So so I, I'm not sure I would ultrasound this gentleman. If it was a younger patient, I had a higher suspicion that this was a gallstone that's uh, that's causing this, then possibly. But I would I would go straight to a, a quadruple phase CT scan of the liver. So that would be pre-contrast, arterial, portal, and delayed phases. Okay. Um, and, and, and the reason for that is if I do find a, a, a lesion, within the liver, I can characterize exactly what that lesion is based on you know how it enhances at what at what phase, check whether there's any vascular involvement, how large the tumor is, and... Yeah. Okay, and so, so that's, that's the imaging, the gold standard cross-sectional imaging. Mm-hmm. Um, MRCP, what about MRCP? I would get an, I would get an MRCP and what an MRI. What does that tell you? Uh, so, so, so an MRCP would tell me um, what the biliary tree anatomy is and how much what the extent of tumour involvement uh, of the biliary tree If you didn't know this chap was hyalocalangia, because we've been mm. talking about it, mm. it just turns up jaundiced, mm. and you you want to know the level of obstruction. Mm. Would, I, I would, would, I would get MRCP MR. not be useful? It would be, yeah. yeah. It would tell me what the level... If, if, so okay. if this was gallstone disease, yeah. then obviously so MRCP, it is gallstone. CT, MR. I, I would get an MR of the liver. The MR would tell me wh- whether there are intrahepatic uh, metastases, other lesions within the liver, yeah. um, and characterise that further. 
PET scan, I probably wouldn't at this. I would get a staging CT if I've detected a lesion, a suspicious lesion here. I would definitely get a staging CT at this point in time because that would be useful for the next stage, which would be referring this patient on for the multidisciplinary team meeting. So I would get a staging CT. I probably wouldn't get a PET CT unless the CT, the original CT scan was 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 borderline in terms of lymph node involvement. Or okay, so I think that's right. PET mm -hmm. CT is not particularly good. Uh, you need to scan the chest, as you mm -hmm. say, so staging CT. Mm -hmm. What else do you want to do for staging? So, so, so prior to this, though, there's something else I just need to um, to mention. Um, I wouldn't get any tumor markers at this stage because the patient's jaundiced, yeah. and it probably wouldn't help too much. Um, but I could potentially, once we've once we've drained the biliary tree, um, obtain a CA99, particularly if we haven't got a tissue biopsy. But the next stage, if we know that there is a lesion, and for example, it's a hyla uh, lesion, the next step would be to to get a biopsy of it and to drain the biliary tree. So, so invasive uh, cholangiography would probably be the next step. So either an ERCP or a, a percutaneous transhepatic cholangiogram. Um, with the what do you do? What's your preference? So, so if, if this was a highly cholangiogram, that's just based on my experience here at the Freeman Hospital. I would get a percutaneous uh, transhepatic cholangiogram. Uh, I could get a biopsy through that and drain the segment that I suspect I'll be leaving right. behind. Is there an evidence of ERCP? You know, people do ERCP still. I, I, th I think it's it's not unreasonable to do an ERCP. But the risk of failure of the procedure is higher. I suspect the risk of morbidity and mortality from both procedures are the same. I think percutane is a little bit more mm -hmm. morbidity if you haven't got someone who does regularly. But there is evidence that ERCP is or ERC is is okay. We've never had that. Uh, we've always had problems with ERC. But there are centres, for example, in this country like Liverpool, where they do a lot of ERC. Mm preoperatively and Hong Kong do the same um, I think it it's horses for courses right we got great radiologists that do are you saying we've got bad uh, endoscopists pre no it's not, it's not that we've had we just have a system that works so mm. if the process works don't break it mm. okay so we've discussed this patient at the MDT um, we need to ask ourselves two questions here is the patient Fit for surgery is the lesion resectable, and we've discussed yeah. earlier what uh, what resectability means. Um, I, if, if the tumor itself is deemed resectable, obviously I would I would get that information prior to drainage, because I don't want any stents in the way, any yeah. drains in the way while I'm. Okay, operating. so let's get you to surgery, and you've done. You, what about laparoscopy before you operate? Uh, so that's a good point. I think the use of laparoscopy has has become less and less relevant nowadays compared to the past because of the quality of imaging that we've got but it still has a place there's still about 10 to 20 percent of cases who have peritoneal disease on presentation and those cases no. won't be detected well on ct so there have been two big studies looking at laparoscopy mm -hmm. one from the dutch from tom van gulik and one from the chinese and actually the dutch series suggested that it was very beneficial mm. and the chinese series says it wasn't beneficial right. We still do laparoscope patients. We do it at the same sitting, so we don't waste um, right, theatre space. Mm -hmm. space. But we 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 always put a laparoscope in to make sure we're not going to end up with clear, visible extrahepatic disease. disease. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's take you to the operation. You're doing an operation, and you find that 
the hepatic arteries involved at the side you want to leave behind. You've now cut the bile duct and you're sitting with a problem with an artery involved. What what would you do now? So you've cut the bile duct on the... Um, at above the pancreas. Um, I think you should cut your losses here and and reconstruct. Reconstruct the bile duct? The bile duct. Not reconstruct the bile duct, but do a hepaticogegenostomy. Okay, so you do a hepaticogegenostomy. Um, that's your. That, I mean, you that, got a tumor you've left behind there. You have, you have. But this what is, other, what's the other? This is this is one way. Where would you of, drain the liver? What's the other way to drain it? Um, well, percutaneously. But you're gonna have okay, to. Okay, so you could do a permanent percutaneous drainage mm-hmm. called, called or, a YouTube, or yeah, called a YouTube, which mm-hmm. was popularized by the Johns Hopkins group. Or what um, about segment three duct drainage? You know about that? No. So segment three duct is a way of draining the liver because it's because you get crossover above the tumor right so you can go to the segment three duct transect making decision along that the falciform ligament mm-hmm. down to segment three find the segment three duct open with a loop of bell on all right so basically you're doing your hepatico onto segment three i see yes okay so that oh. way you are you've provided you've yeah. got your bypass mm. um and you're doing an operation you start your operation and you find you find uh, lymph nodes beyond where you've been, where you your your normal dissection field. Normal dissection yeah. field. What do you do now? Patients okay. open. Okay, right. So um, were these visible preoperatively? I presume not. No. Okay. And is this PSC? No, this Back is all right. Okay. Carcinoma. Okay. What would you do? Um, I would sample these. I would do a frozen section. You send them off. They're positive. Patients open. Mm-hmm. Big incision. Retract is in. You haven't done anything that's irretrievable. Okay. But I the would, nodes are positive. I would stop because there is you evidence. You close them up. I'll close them up. Right. There's evidence that uh, that if you, you know, because this is by definition is going to be an R1 resection. Well, it's not an R1 resection, but it's, but it's you're leaving tumor behind. And these tu- these patients do worse than if you don't. Operate. What about the argument of saying this is palliative operation? I want to do this anyway. No, not, 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 not for cholangiocarcinoma. I wouldn't. Because they, they'll, they'll be worse off having a resection. This is a major resection they're going to have. These patients will die quicker than if you did nothing. Okay. I accept that answer. Professor Manus, thank you very much for your time today. I've personally learned quite a lot and I'm sure all our listeners... Quite a lot. Quite a lot, yeah. (laughs) Surprisingly. (laughs) Well, I hope all our listeners have too. Um, Join us again for the next episode of Scrubcast where we'll be talking about the juggernaut, hepatocellular carcinoma. I was going to call it the liver troll. <laughs> I promise it's going to be as interesting as this. Until then, thank you very much for listening. What about... What about, what about a cup of tea now? Audio